I've often thought that one of the ways God uh, humbles us is by letting our technology either tyrannize us like the uh, telephone does or fail us like our uh, overhead did this morning. Uh, Turn with me, please, to the fifth chapter of the book of Daniel. If you don't have a Bible with you, you may find one under the seat in front of you, or you can uh, look on with someone who has one near you. I'd encourage you to look at the text uh, with us. I'd like to invite you this morning to a party. It uh, happened a long time ago, about 2,500 years ago, in uh, Babylon. It was a party that Belshazzar, the last uh, king of Babylon, threw for the uh, notables in his kingdom. Let's begin reading with chapter 5, verse 1. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, actually his grandfather, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his notables, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. And they drank, and as they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. As I mentioned last week, uh, Babylon is one of the most thoroughly excavated cities uh, in the Middle East, and they found this uh, banquet hall in the palace of Nebuchadnezzar. It was a room about the size of, of this room, and there were about as many people attending the, uh, the banquet as there are in this room at the present time. And uh, Belshazzar invited all the, the prestigious people in, in the kingdom to come for, this, uh, for this, this party, this banquet. One of the ironies of this chapter is that while they were partying, the Medes and the Persians were undermining the walls of the city of Babylon. Uh, the combined might of these two empires, the Persian Empire, the Median Empire, under the leadership of a man named Guburu, were right outside the uh, city walls, besieging the city. We know that, not only from Scripture, but, uh, but from history. I mentioned a few weeks ago that this man, Belshazzar, though he's a very prominent person in the, in the book of Daniel, at least three chapters are dated with reference to him. It was virtually unknown in history until recently. As a matter of fact, uh, skeptics of the Bible felt that this was one of the indications that Daniel was way off because here's a, a, a fatal flaw, an historic uh, error in the book because according to all the Babylonian writings, the last king of Babylon was a, na- was a man by the name of Nabonidus. All of the classical sources said this was so and the Babylonians themselves in their king list had Nabonidus as, as the last king. But a few years ago, uh, some researcher in a dusty back room of the uh, London Museum was looking at some cuneiform tablets, and he came across the name Belshazzar, which would be Belshazzar's name in Akkadian, and uh, they realized who this man was. He was the elder son of Nabonidus. Nabonidus went off to the Arabian desert, put himself in self-imposed exile, and left his son behind on the throne. And Belshazzar was, indeed, the last king of Babylon as Daniel uh, 5 tells us. Now, he uh, conducted a banquet, and uh, after he'd been drinking a bit and uh, had a few sheets in the wind, he, uh, he asked that the gold and silver goblets 
that Nebuchadnezzar, his grandfather, had taken from the temple of Jerusalem the goblets that had been and dedicated to the worship of the God of Israel, those be brought, and they drank their wine from these goblets, and they praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. And suddenly, we're told, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the landscape, in the royal palace. You'll recognize that this is the event from which we get our, our phrase, I have seen the handwriting on the wall. Uh, as I said, they've excavated this, uh, this building. They know what it looks like. One of the walls was covered with blue glazed tile. Three of the walls were covered with white plaster. Wonderful writing surfaces. The sort of thing our children love to write on. And we don't like that, but it's all right for God to write on the wall if he pleases. And that's exactly what he did near the lampstand so the writing could be seen in the palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His, fur, his face turned as white as the plaster on the wall. One knee said to the other, let's shake. <laughs> and he collapsed on his couch. His legs gave way. Now, uh, the writing on the wall was in perfectly good Aramaic. Anyone in the room could have read it. There were three words, actually four words, but one word is repeated twice. Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parsin was written on the wall. Now, these, uh, these are weights in Aramaic. They're weights that were used as units of exchange before coinage came in. They didn't use coins in the Babylonian Empire, at least not extensively. It wasn't until the Persians, the Persian period that they did, and they used these weights as the equivalent of, of coins. Later they came into use in the Persian Empire and later in, in Israel as the mina. You've probably heard that expression. The shekel. Tekel translates into shekel in, in Hebrew in the Paris. They're just uh, monetary units. That's all. It would be the equivalent of $5.10, $0.05. Because the mina is 50 times the value of the shekel. And uh, the, the Paris is half the value of a, of a shekel. So it would be like someone writing on one of these walls, $5.10, $0.05. It didn't make any sense to uh, Belshazzar, but uh, as we say, he saw the handwriting on the wall. He knew that it must mean more than he could discern from the words themselves. And so he asked for help under the uh, mistaken notion that money will buy you anything. He uh, called out for the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners to be brought and said to these wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple, that's a sign of rank, and have a gold chain placed around his neck, and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. As I said uh, before several weeks back, the skeptics of the Bible should have, should have noted the fact that that uh, Daniel or the enchanters were offered a third position of the king and that would place them behind Nabonidus and Belshazzar. But uh, the wise men could not interpret the reading. They could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. They could read the writing, but they didn't discern the meaning. But Belshazzar knew that something was up. The writing was ominous, and he had to know the meaning of this inscription on, on the wall. The queen, 
hearing the voices of the king and his nobles came into the banquet hall. Now, this was a breach of social etiquette. No one burst into the presence of the king without permission. But this is the queen mother. And rank has its privileges, as you know. No one messes with uh, the mother. And this is the queen mother. And more importantly, she is Belshazzar's mother. We know his wife was already there with him in the room. And his wives, actually, his concubines. And uh, so she must have been the wife of Nabonidus, his father, who would be his mother, who was the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar. And she was a very powerful influential woman. This woman had clout. And so she burst into the room. And uh, as my wife pointed out uh, to me this last week, uh, one of the reasons Belshazzar got into so much trouble is that he didn't obey his mother. She said, O king, live forever. And he didn't obey that command. And she said, don't be alarmed and don't look pale. And that didn't work either. He, he, He just was pale as a sheet. He was frightened out of his wits. She says, there's a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. That's almost verbatim from Nebuchadnezzar's comments about Daniel. She had grown up in the court. She was aware of Daniel. She she reminds her son that there is a man who can interpret dreams. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your predecessor, father in... In uh, Hebrew, th- uh, in in this during this period, could refer to uh, a grandfather or as well as a father. King Nebuchadnezzar, your grandfather, your grandfather, the king, I say, to drive the point home, appointed him chief of his magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. This man Daniel, whom the king called Belshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding, and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, untie knots. Call for Daniel. He'll tell you what the writing means. So Daniel, again, is the man of the hour. He had been uh, out of the uh, center of things since the year 562, apparently, when Nebuchadnezzar died. It's now 539. He's about 80 years of age. Uh, He's been out of power. And yet Daniel's always the same. That's that's what amazes me about this man. doesn't make any difference whether he's exalted or whether he's been uh, humbled. He's always the same. He's just a man who walks with God and, and says to others what God has said to him. So Daniel was brought in, and the king says to him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah? I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. That's what his mother had just told him. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and to tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now I have heard that you're able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you'll be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck, and you'll be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. But Daniel answered the king, Keep your gifts and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I'll read the writing for you, and I'll tell you what it means. You can have your uh, perks, he said. I, I'm not interested in that. I, I just want to tell you what the, what the writing means. I'm looking for advancement. just want to speak to you the truth. O king, he says, The Most High God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. It gives him a history lesson. Henry Ford says history is bunk, or is alleged to have said history is bunk, but it is. He was wrong. If we don't learn from history, as someone has said, we're destined to repeat it. What Daniel is trying to do is to drive home the point that God taught his forefather Nebuchadnezzar, if he'll listen and if he'll learn. The Most High God gave your father 
is a gift. His sovereignty is a gift. His majesty is a gift. His greatness and his glory and his splendor come from God. Remember I said last week, man is great. In a sense, we can be humanists if we understand what it means, if we understand where man's greatness comes from. Man's greatness comes from God. As a matter of fact, these, these attributes that are ascribed to Nebuchadnezzar, sovereignty, greatness, glory, and splendor, are, are attributed to God in the Old Testament. God wants to give greatness and dignity and majesty to us. But uh, as we saw last, last week from Nebuchadnezzar's story, we can only be men and we can only be women when we're rightly related to God, when we know Him and we're, we're worshiping Him and loving Him. God did this for Nebuchadnezzar because of the high position He gave him. All the peoples and nations and men of every language dreaded and feared Him. God raised him to a position of authority. Underscores that time and time again it was God's doing, not His. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne, stripped of his glory, he was driven away from his people. And given the mind of an animal, he lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like cattle. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and, and sets over them everyone he he wishes. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar went out on top of his palace and he started looking over his city and he said, Look what I have done by my power and for myself. And the men went stark, raving mad. They had to lock him up. He was insane for seven years until he looked up, as the, as the text tells us in, in 434. I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High, honored and glorified him who lives lives forever. But he says, Belshazzar, you didn't learn. You didn't learn from Nebuchadnezzar's history. As for you, his son, verse 22, O Belshazzar, you have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Isn't it interesting that we know that we were made for God? No one has to tell us that. Paul points out in Romans 1, with reference to the uh, educated, highly cultured people of his day, that they knew God. They know God. But they don't honor him as God. They don't give him thanks. They don't give him the time of day. They don't recognize that he is sovereign over life and, and breath. And he's the one who determines our, our destiny. He says, you knew this. You knew it. Talking to a friend of mine this last uh, Wednesday, he was telling me about a friend of his who is an atheist and an avowed atheist. And, and my friend said, with reference to his friend, atheism is a heavy burden to carry. Oh, boy, how insightful. So true. Because most, most atheists are inveighing against something so deeply entrenched in them, they have to fight against it. They can't be uh, just satisfied atheists because they're always trying to convince themselves that nothing is. Nothing is, is there, but there is something there. There's that quiet voice, that subtle insistence that we were made for God. You just cannot get away from it. We know. You knew this, but you didn't humble yourself. Instead, you set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You defied God. 
You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives, and your concubines drank from them. You praised the gods of silver, gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. What, what, what sarcasm, scorching sarcasm. You worship gods that can't see or hear or understand. Gods of wood, clay, gold, silver. You're materialist, in other words. But you didn't honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Sarah Teasdale, uh, the American poetess of a few generations back, said something of her own uh, struggle against God. I would not have God come in to shield me suddenly from my sin and set my house of lights to rights, nor angels with bright burning wings ordering my thoughts and things. Rather, my own frail, guttering lights, wind-blown and nearly beaten out, rather the terror of the nights, and long, sick, groping after doubt. Rather be lost than let my soul slip vaguely from my own control. Of my own spirit, let me be in soul, though feeble mastery. That's so tragic. There's so many people like that. They know they were made for God. We were made to glorify Him. If you've ever been a Presbyterian, and you memorize the Westminster Catechism, you know that the chief end of man is to glorify God, is to honor Him. It's what we're made for. He's the Creator. We're the creature. We're not gods. We never will be. We were made to submit to Him and to love Him and to worship Him and to thank Him. Do you realize what Daniel says to Belshazzar? He says, you didn't honor the God who holds in His hand your breath, literally, and your destiny. Do you realize that every breath we draw, every beat of the heart, every impulse of your autonomic nervous system comes because of God? He's in control of life. He can give it. He can withdraw it. And yet we go arrogantly through life. I am the captain of my fate. I am the master of my soul, as, as William Henley put it. We thumb our nose at God. Or, as, as Belshazzar, we're just indifferent to him. It's interesting, Belshazzar wasn't, wasn't guilty of nearly as much evil as his, bro, as, as his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, who conquered whole nations and took people into exile and slaughtered entire uh, populations of cities. He's one of the most cruel, rapacious men that ever walked on the face of the earth. You get the impression that Belshazzar just kicked back and enjoyed being king. But his sin was simple indifference. He just didn't care. So went his own way. And never gave God the time of day. Therefore, it says he sent the hand. God sent the hand that wrote the inscription on the wall. This is the inscription that was written. Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parsim. This is what the words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. In other words, your number's up. God knows the number of, of years that uh, you'll exist on this earth, and, and the number's up. It's all up with you. It's over. Your life's coming to an end. You've been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Tekel means to weigh. Put you on the scales. You're lightweight, he said. You don't measure up. Peres. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Mene, Mene, Takel, Parsin. Numbered, weighed, 
divide it. What he does is take the noun forms of these words and just change them into verbs. And he gives Belshazzar the meaning. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple, a gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. I read this to the staff this past week, and Chris Riddell said, big big deal, king for a day. <laughs> Five, four, three, two, one. That very night, Belshazzar, the king of the Babylonians, was slain. The Hebrew Bible ends with verse 30. For some reason, our translators have tacked verse 31 on to the end of chapter 5, but I think they're wrong. Chapter, verse 31 belongs with chapter 6. The Hebrews saw the, the point of this whole story. There's, there's no moralizing. It just leaves that last line ringing in our ears. Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, was slain. Now, what happened was this. All the classical sources tell us that the Medes and Persians were outside these 85-foot walls. I mentioned a week or so ago that this was an impregnable defense system or two walls with a moat on the outside that was filled with water. There was simply no way they could get their battering rams, their war machines up to the foot of this wall to knock it down. They they, they could not take the city. It had been under siege for for several months. And uh, while the Medes and Persians were camped outside... They were partying inside. That's how worried they were about the outcome of this of this siege. The Babylonians ran the, the Euphrates River right through the center of the city, so they had plenty of water. They had plenty of food. They could have withstood a siege for years until the other, till the besieging army was starved out and went back home. All they had to do was button the thing up and wait. Herodotus tells us that uh, Persians dammed up the Euphrates and diverted it into a dry lake bed. And the Medes and Persians walked under the walls on the dry lake, uh, dry riverbed into the city. And the city fell that night. And they crashed Belshazzar's party. And he died. And that was the end of him. Now, what is it about that story that's so horrific? You know, Daniel died. He was in his 80s. And uh, he died. Everyone dies. The death rate's been 100% since the beginning of the human race. The statistics on death are staggering. One out of every one people die. Why why do we shudder when we read this story? Well, because you sense that Belshazzar had it all wrong. He wasn't obviously evil. He just never thought about God. It doesn't say that he cursed the God of Israel when they were drinking out of the goblets. It just says that they... They blessed the gods of gold, silver, iron, wood. You see, he didn't think about God. He never thought seriously about his relationship to God. He was basically materialist. That's all. He gave himself to things. Nothing wrong with things, but that was the limit of his thinking. What he could see and touch and buy and taste and wear. Those were the things that were important to him. Uh, Time Magazine has uh, discovered that there's a new subgroup in America which they call dinks. You know what a dink is? It's a double-income, no-kid couple. Let me read what they say about dinks. The members of this newly defined species can best be spotted after 9 p.m. in gourmet groceries. Their Burberry-clothed arms reaching for the Perrier or a Le Menu frozen flounder dinner. 
In the parking lot, they slide into their BMWs and lift cellular phones to their ears before zooming off to their architect-designed houses in the exurbs. After warmly greeting Rover, often Akita, uh, often an Akita or a Golden Retriever, they check to be sure the pooch service has delivered his nutritionally correct dog food. Then they consult the phone answering machine, pop dinner into the microwave, and finally sink into their Italian leather sofa to watch a, a video cassette of, say, last week's LA Law or Cheers on their high-definition, large-screen stereo television. These speedy high rollers are upper-crust dinks. They flourish in the pricier suburbs as well as in gentrified urban neighborhoods. There's no time for deep freezers or station wagons in their voracious nonstop schedule. Many enterprising dinks slave for a combined 100-hour-plus work week, a pace relieved by exotic vacations and expensive health clubs. Their hectic, time-poor lifestyle often forces them to schedule dinners with each other and, in some supercharged cases, even sex. Now, we read that and we laugh. We say, oh, well, that's what happens in California. <laughs> and there's nothing particularly wrong with, with some of the things that they're doing, see. The problem is that they're not scheduling any time for God. That's the problem. They're centered on things. And one of these days they're going to die, just as you and I will die. And what will they do then? That's the great question. We can live our whole lives and thumb our nose at God or be indifferent to Him and get away with it. That's one of the things that kept worrying the psalmist. He kept, you know, the, the theologians call it the theodicy, justification of, of God. How is it that people can, can live godless lives their entire life and get away with it? They don't. That's the whole point. They don't. That's what the psalmist says in Psalm 73. I perceived their latter end. I saw that we all die like dogs. That's the way he puts it. Everybody dies. And then we meet our maker. And what will we say then? That's the point. We may have done some marvelous things, but we stand before God and it's this very impressive performance. But you missed the point of the whole thing. That life was to be lived for God. And you missed out. You know, I read this story. There were, two, there were two passages, two texts that came to my mind. One in the New Testament, one in the Old Testament. One is a parable and the other is a psalm. The parable is in Luke 12. It's a story that Jesus told. So there was a farmer who was very successful, had a bumper crop. Then he had a storage problem. What am I going to do with all my grain? So he said, I know what I'll do. I'll tread in all these little barns. I'll build bigger barns. And then I'll kick back and live off of the results for the rest of my life. And I don't have to worry about a thing from now on. I got it made. And God said, fool. This night your life is required of you. And the man had a massive coronary and fell over. And Jesus said, now who will get his things? It's a good question to ask. There's nothing wrong with being a farmer. Nothing wrong with having a bumper crop. Nothing wrong with building barns. Nothing wrong with kicking back and retiring. It's not the point. It's just he never gave God the time of day. He never said thanks for the rain, for the sunshine, for the things that God had provided. See, that's the problem. We just don't think to thank God for health, for laughter, for joy, for children. Like Sybil Shepherd, we say, I deserve everything that's come to me. Incredible statement. I deserve everything that's come to me. As though she had done it herself. 
I have a story I tell my men every once in a while because I just, you know, to me it's just another one of those chilling stories about the stockbrokers walking along the beach and he finds a bottle and he dusts the thing off and out pops a genie and the genie gives him one request. And being a very wise man, he says, I'd like to have a copy of the New York Times one year hence. And you know what he did? He turned to the market page. And with this kind of insider information, he was going to make a real killing. And he was, he was, he was looking at the prices of various stocks. And his eye happened to fall on the page opposite, and he saw his own picture over his obituary. And you see, that puts things into perspective. One of these days we're going to die, and what will we do then? Can't evade it, can't avoid it, got to take it realistically. And we try to stave it off, you know, with cosmetic stuff we dabble over our face to make us look a little younger. But we keep getting older. We can't stave it off forever, and pretty soon we die. And what will we do then? That's his point. It's inevitable. We don't like to go to funerals. Bums us out. It's a big chill. We don't like to go to hospitals because they smell like disease and death. But the most realistic thing that we can do in life is to take a good, hard look at our life and realize that it's going to come to an end. One of these days, the Grim Reaper is going to come, and it's all up with us. Read something Akimpus said. Very soon, the end of your life will be at hand. Consider, therefore, the state of your soul. Today a man is here, tomorrow he's gone, and when he's out of sight, he's soon out of mind. Oh, how dull and hard is the heart of man, which thinks only of the present and does not provide against the future. You should order your every deed and thought as if today were the day of your death. I was really touched a couple of years ago by an article in Time magazine about the uh, death of uh, of uh, the WBC uh, featherweight champion Salvador Sanchez. He said to a Time reporter who was interviewing, I'd like to step down undefeated. I'm only 23 and I have all the time in the world. And a month later they found him in the wreckage of, of his Porsche 928. Walter Kaufman In his book, The Faith of a Heretic, says, We regularly emphasize the accidental cause of death, the mishap, the disease, the infection, the advanced age, and thus betray our eagerness to demote death from a necessity to a mere accident. But it's not an accident, it's a necessity. One of these days we're going to die, and and the great question is, what will I do then? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? And then I thought of another passage, and I'd like to have you turn there with it in a few minutes, uh, with me in the few minutes that I have left. Psalm 90. It's a wonderful text. It's a psalm of Moses. You may not have known that Moses, the mate, the great prophet and man of God, uh, to whom we're indebted for the first five books of the Old Testament. He, he, wrote, he wrote a psalm. And this is, one, actually he wrote a couple, and this is one of them. It's a reflection on on death. It's getting old. And I'm not going to read the whole psalm. I just, just a couple of thoughts. He says, Lord, you've been our dwelling place throughout all generations before the mountains were born and you were brought forth, uh, and you, or you brought forth the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, your God. God is eternal. God is immortal. God is forever. God never dies. But men do. Verse 3, you turn men back to dust, saying, Return to dust, O sons of men. We're made out of dirt, and we go right back to dirt when we die. God scrapes some dirt together, breathes into us the breath of life, and we became living personalities. And when we die, 
We go right back to dust. Probably heard the story about the little boy who heard that God made man out of dust, and he looked under his bed one night, and he saw these dust bunnies under there, and went running downstairs, and he said, Mom, there's a man under my bed, but I don't know whether he's coming or going. <laughs> but it's it's true. We, we're just made out of dust. A friend of mine says, no one is made out of super dust. Just dust. A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has gone by or like a watch in the night. My, my father is 91 years of age. That's really getting up there. But this psalm says that his lifespan is like a watch in the night. You go to sleep, 11 or 12 o'clock at night, you wake up the next morning, you don't even realize the time has elapsed. Just like that. It's nothing. When looked at in terms of time and eternity. You sweep men away in the sleep of death. Interesting analogy. Hold that in your mind. You sweep men away in the sleep of death. They're like the new grass of the morning. Though in the morning it springs up new, by evening it's dry and withered. It's like grass that starts out green, and by the end of the day, particularly in these arid, uh, very warm uh, Middle East, Near Eastern countries, the, the grass soon withers away. There's a cycle of birth and death that we're all familiar with. I've lost track of these odd juxtapositions of death and life where I've been at a funeral where a member of the family couldn't attend the funeral because they were giving birth to a child. That sort of thing seems to happen over and over again. The cycle of birth and death and birth and death just seems endless. And then he introduces the fact that we'd never know if he didn't tell us. He tells us that death is not a biological necessity. Death is not our lot, it's our sentence. We die because of sin. As Paul puts it, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and therefore death passed upon all men because all have sinned. The reason we die is because we're sinful. We're consumed by your wrath, dismayed by your indignation. You've set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. Sounds like T.S. Eliot's uh, line, we die not with a bang but with a whimper. The length of our days is 70 years or 80 if we have strength. We have 70 or 80 years. That means I've got either 16 or 26 years, depending on how strong I am. Yet their span is but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. As the T-shirt puts it, life is hard and then we die. You may live to be 70, you may live to be 80, but one of these days... God withdraws our breath, and it's, it's over. Now, verse 12 is the punchline. Teach us to number our days aright, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. You understand what he's saying? If we are realists, we'll look at our life and, and take, take stock. How long do you have to live? If you live out uh, your natural lifespan, you may have 10, 20, 30, 40 years yet to live, 50, or you may die by accident, but you're going to die, and so am I, and we have to face it. Do, do you realize that's why Jesus came, that's why God gave up his glory and his majesty in heaven and came to earth for you and for me, and because of death, because of sin, 
in death. He clothed himself with with humility and died for us. As the hymn puts it, "'Tis mystery all, the immortal dies." How did it happen? I don't know. All I know is that Jesus became mortal to die for us. He paid the price for our sins on the cross. And he was raised for our justification. As the New Testament tells us, he's the first fruits of those that are risen from the dead. We just follow in his train. We don't have to dread death. We don't have to fear it. We don't have to dread what's coming up. We can, as as, as G.K. Chesterton said, we can face death with colossal joy because our Lord, by death, defeated death. What he did for us. Made sin he sin or through, and death by dying slow. That's why Jesus could say, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even though he dies, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives in me and believes in me shall never really die. All this life will come to an end, but really it doesn't matter because it simply means that we'll step from this life.